You're listening to the EM Ottawa podcast. That's right, we're back with another episode of the EM Ottawa podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Rajiv Thavanathan. Apologies in advance, you may notice that my voice is a little more gravelly. It is a little more scratchy than it usually is because I'm just getting over my first ever run-in with the COVID-19 virus, where the COVID-19 virus won. Uh, I don't feel too bad, so, uh, you know, vaccines work, people. Uh, Go out and get yours as soon as you possibly can, boosters and whatnot. But if you hear any weird hacking or coughing during this episode, uh, that is the explanation for why. You may ask yourself, Rajiv, you have the power to cut out coughing and hacking. Why did you not simply remove them? Uh, I don't have a good answer for that. I'm kind of lazy. I don't know. But anyways, on with the show. We have a very special guest today. His name is Dr. Chirag Bhatt. He's a fifth, meaning final year resident in the emergency medicine program here at the University of Ottawa. He's going to graduate soon. Who's got an interest in pain management in the emergency department. But he recently gave us a great grand rounds about a completely different topic. I will say conservatively, it was universally beloved. It made quite an impression on the department, and we wanted to share it with you so you could benefit from this uh, same expertise. It's got lots of pearls about an entity we think we understand, managing the patient with cirrhosis. Now, you should totally check out Chirag's Grand Round summary over on the EM Ottawa blog. We'll put a link to that in the show notes. Another important article we've referred to many times in this discussion is the Clinical Practice Guideline for the Management of Patients with Decompensated Cirrhosis by the European Association for the Study of the Liver, or EASL. That's from 2018. We'll put a link for that citation in the notes as well. Chirag, thanks so much for being on the show with us today. Tell us, what is it that drew you to this topic in the first place? Yeah, so I guess the reason I started um, thinking about doing Grand Rounds is why most people start reading about anything in medicine. It's when you make a mistake. Um, and I had made a pretty big mistake that really affected a patient's care. I uh, had seen a middle-aged man um, that came into the emergency department with fever, tachycardia, and abdominal pain, and uh, was a little bit confused as well. His past medical history included cirrhosis, uh, and he had ascites on exam. So I actually thought that that patient probably had spontaneous bacteroperitonitis, and I uh, did the diagnostic paracentesis, diagnosed him with SPP, and treated him with antibiotics. And I thought, okay, amazing. I did all the right things. I diagnosed this guy. I gave him the appropriate treatment, and I consulted the medical service. And then when I followed up on him the next day, I realized that I had actually made a huge mistake because I hadn't considered the diagnosis of secondary bacterial peritonitis. And as it turned out, that patient um, ended up actually having a surgical abdomen, um, which is what caused him to have the, the bacterial peritonitis. So that entire case ended up with me realizing that there was a, a lot of gaps in my knowledge and in, in I think a lot of emergency physicians' knowledge about the complications that can happen to patients in cirrhosis. And so that's what started me kind of doing a bunch of research on cirrhosis complications in the ED and um, uh, ultimately giving that grand rounds. Yeah. And thank you for sharing that with us, by the way, your own little personal M&M. I know for me personally, when I, the things that stick in my head the hardest over all these years is because of things that I've messed up at work. And I know I'm not alone with that, but still it's not easy. So thank you for being willing to share. Yeah, exactly. Totally. 
Now, most of your talk was centered around this 2018 document from the EASL. What was your biggest takeaway from reviewing this fairly lengthy document? I think the biggest takeaway is just how many different complications patients with cirrhosis can have. Um, And I think oftentimes, us in the emergency department, we focus a lot on things like variceal bleeding, and we don't really focus as much on spontaneous bacterial peritonitis. We in the emergency department need to reframe how we look at spontaneous bacterial peritonitis. I think a lot of us, we think of it as this diagnosis that eventually will be made by internal medicine, but it's not really an emergency medicine diagnosis. I think my biggest takeaway is that SPP is truly an emergency medicine diagnosis. It is a very high mortality and extremely common disease. Okay, I'm starting to pick up what you're laying down. What do, what do you think is the better comparison then? What do you, what's the better analogy here? So I think the, the best comparison with SBP is um, thinking about meningitis and how we, how we as an emergency medicine community think about meningitis. When we think about meningitis, we think of it as this like really dangerous disorder that we absolutely cannot miss. Um, and we, we, we have to search for in every patient with fever and headache, or at least think about, for example. But meningitis actually has a lower mortality and is less common than SBP. Hmm. SVP has a mortality of something around 25% despite adequate antibiotics. So that means one in four patients that have SVP and are treated with antibiotics still die in hospital. And again, about 25% of patients with cirrhosis will have SVP at some point. So the bottom line is that SVP is extremely common. It's more common than meningitis. And it's more dangerous and deadly than meningitis. So it's, it is absolutely an emergency medicine diagnosis and one that we have to take extremely seriously and consider in all of our patients with cirrhosis. Yeah, no kidding. Those numbers are bonkers, right? I mean, one in four in hospital mortality for treated SBP. I'm kind of surprised no one actually framed the problem like this to me before. Yeah, that's right. And yet, for some reason, I don't think we have that... I don't think we, again, as an emergency medicine community, really have that level of worry when we make that diagnosis. Um, so I'm, I'm not sure what has, has prompted that, but it, it certainly requires us to reframe how we look at it. Okay, well, you've made a compelling case and made me sufficiently anxious about missing this diagnosis. Tell us, how do you make the diagnosis of SBP? The diagnosis of SBP requires us to do a diagnostic uh, paracentesis. And, and the reason for that is because, as you know, SBP is a bacterial infection of the ascites fluid. And so when you do a diagnostic paracentesis, you're looking at the absolute neutrophil count in the ascites fluid. And if the absolute neutrophil count is over 250 cells, then that gives you a diagnosis of SBP. Okay, so 250 neutrophils, that's a really nice round number that I'm going to commit to memory. But who do I actually need to be doing this diagnostic tap on? I mean, SBP has peritonitis in the name. Do they need to have that frank abdominal tenderness and guarding for me to think about doing this? So, so that's actually a, a very common misconception that I definitely had prior to kind of reading more about SBP. Because uh, as you say, it's within the name, right? Peritonitis. And so I think we, we often look for fever and abdominal pain what, to even start considering the diagnosis of SPP in, in patients with cirrhosis. 
Um, but the problem with that approach is that you're actually going to end up missing a large uh, portion of patients that present with SVP because the presentation of SVP is highly variable. If you kind of take a step back and think about the cirrhotic patient, um, they're actually relatively immunocompromised. And so the way they present in response to infection is not the way that we typically expect. Oh, okay. Well, if not just fever and abdominal pain, then what symptoms should I expect them to have? Patients with um, SVP can actually also present with isolated hepatic encephalopathy, isolated renal failure, GI bleeding, any abnormal vital signs. So that includes tachycardia, hypotension, hypothermia, and fever, leukocytosis by itself, just vomiting, or they can just present acidotic. And each of these things in isolation should make you as an emergency physician think about the diagnosis of SBP. Oof, that is quite a list. So not just abdominal pain then. The presentation of abdominal pain actually only occurs in half of the patients that present with SBP. So that means that half of the patients with SBP have no abdominal pain. What? And fever only presents in about 42% of patients with SVP. So again, that means that you can't really bank on fever and abdominal pain or the absence of these things to rule out SVP. You still have to think about SVP even if a patient presents with just tachycardia or just renal failure or just an elevated white blood cell count because the consequences of missing SVP are deadly to the patient in front of you. Drug, you are killing me here. Next, you're going to tell me there's a chunk of spontaneous bacterial peritonitis patients that have no symptoms whatsoever. Yeah, there was um, there was a study done where they looked at paracentesis done in an outpatient clinic, and um, they found that 13% of, uh, of patients that had SVP were actually asymptomatic. And so the fact that something that has a mortality of 25% can present that indolently, it was terrifying to me. Now, the patients that present to the emergency department are actually often not asymptomatic, right? They often present to the emergency department for some symptom or, or some reason. But that finding kind of just shows you how how indolent and how dangerous this um, this diagnosis is and why we have to have such a low threshold to search for it. Okay, and let's say you know, maybe not even missed diagnosis, but delayed diagnosis. What are the implications of that in the emergency department? There was a study done which looked at um, delayed paracentesis and what effect delaying paracentesis would have on mortality in these patients. And every hour that you actually delay doing a diagnostic paracentesis in a patient um, that has SBP, their mortality increases by, more, by about 3.3% for every hour. And so that's why, as an emergency physician, I, I truly believe you have to take it upon yourself to do that diagnostic para rather than deferring it to the inpatient team, because that early diagnosis actually saves lives. Okay, so give me your critical take-home point here when it comes to making the diagnosis of SBP in the emergency department. The critical action is that on your next emergency shift, adopt an extremely low threshold to perform a diagnostic paracentesis in cirrhotic patients because SVP is an emergency diagnosis with a extremely high mortality and a very subtle presentation. Okay, so let's talk about treatments. I think most eMERGE docs think the treatment for SVP is a dose of IV ceftriaxone or your third generation cephalosporin of choice. What other th treatments do we need to keep in mind when managing SPP? 
I think we often believe that antibiotics are what we in the emergency have to give, and then we're kind of done there, and we, we kind of defer further treatment to the inpatient team. Um, but I think that we need to kind of change our perspective on that because there's now new evidence that albumin is actually an extremely important uh, treatment um, for patients with SPP. So when you give albumin to a patient with SPP, there's the new findings that you can actually decrease their mortality from 25%, which is that number I quoted to you before, all the way down to 10%. There was a uh, meta-analysis done, which looked at four different studies, which assessed albumin's role in in the treatment of patients with SVP. Ultimately, the findings were that albumin had a number needed to treat of six patients to prevent one death, and it had a number needed to treat of four patients to prevent renal failure. Dude, those numbers are, bet nothing else in emergency medicine comes even close. That's wild. Exactly. Like how many treatments do we give in the emergency department that ever come even close to that, right? Now, the there are some criticisms with the studies um, uh, underlying the meta-analysis in that they were they were pretty small um, uh, uh, in terms of their their total number of uh, of patients. But even if that NNT were twenty, for example, that is an amazing treatment that we should certainly offer to our patients. And so, because of these um, because of this meta-analysis and these all these underlying studies now. The latest 2018 guidelines actually state that we should be giving albumin the moment we diagnose our patients with SVP. And the dose that we as emergency physicians should give is 1.5 grams per kilogram. Oh, I'm glad you clarified the dose because I always had one gram a kilogram tucked in my mind, but it's 1.5. Yeah, so there were some studies absolutely that used one gram per kilogram, but again, they were they were definitely the smallest studies that studied that um, uh, that studied albumin. Uh, the largest study to to look at albumin's role in the treatment of SPP used a dose of one point five grams per kilogram. Um, again, all of these numbers were essentially chosen arbitrarily, but given that the biggest study uses the dose of one point five grams per kilogram. That's what the guidelines recommend going forward. And I think that makes makes a lot of sense. Okay, now look, I've had a long-standing love and respect for albumin since it seemed like when I was a junior resident on ICU that it could get you out of pretty much any situation that was bad. What is it about the stuff that makes it so damn special? The, the original theory of um, why albumin actually may, might have a benefit for these patients is that it, it increases intravascular volume, but it also binds to these endotoxins that are produced in spontaneous bacterial peritonitis. And by doing those things, it ultimately decreases renal failure, hepatorenal syndrome, and ultimate death. That's the theory, at least. Okay, well, I buy it. So the big takeaway here is if you make a diagnosis of SBP, give a dose of intravenous albumin and a dose of 1.5 grams per kilogram. Make sure to give it within six hours of diagnosis. Earlier is better. Absolutely, yeah. Don't defer that to the inpatient team. Just make that decision. You're supported by the guidelines. You're supported by the evidence. Give that patient albumin. Okay, I want to talk about something that gets glossed over a little bit, and that's the distinction between the spontaneous versus secondary bacterial peritonitis. It's unfortunate that they both spell SBP, but they're hmm. apparently different entities, right? 
Now, you alluded to this at the top of the episode with the case you told, but what exactly is secondary bacterial peritonitis? Secondary bacterial peritonitis um, often gets confused with spontaneous bacterial peritonitis. And that's because in secondary bacterial peritonitis, you actually do have ascites fluid that is infected, just like in spontaneous peritonitis. But in secondary peritonitis, it's because of an, uh, another intra-abdominal uh, infectious source. So it's secondary, right? It's secondary to an api or a coli or a perforation. Um, and when you do the paracentesis on these patients, you're still going to have an absolute neutrophil count greater than 250 cells because there is an infection. And you might be tempted to call this spontaneous bacterial peritonitis, but you would be missing the fact that there is a secondary source that you need to be aware of. The reason this matters is because secondary peritonitis is a surgical disease. And without surgery, these patients have near 100% mortality because obviously you're not you're not getting any source control. And so that's why knowing that difference between secondary bacterial peritonitis and and spontaneous peritonitis is really really crucial for emergency doctors. Yeah, it's definitely an important distinction and I'm totally guilty of that. I think sometimes in my zest to make sure that the tap is done nice and early to rule out spontaneous BP, I sometimes forget to consider if it is secondary to another process. I think part of that is because a lot of patients with decompensated cirrhosis do have abdominal pain and distension. And sometimes it can be hard not to just write it off as like, ah, this is just because of their ascites. Yeah, absolutely. And actually, what you bring up is a really great point in that how do you even differentiate spontaneous from secondary peritonitis? On history, as you mentioned, all of these patients tend to have some degree of abdominal pain. And it's really quite challenging to, to use our history to differentiate the two. In fact, there was a, a study that tried to uh, do just that, to try to figure out if there were any key differentiating factors between spontaneous and secondary peritonitis. And, and on history, perhaps there is some evidence that they tend to have more abdominal pain um, in terms of severity, but that's really challenging for us to differentiate the two just based off that. Even our physical exam is actually pretty poor at differentiating these two. Now, if the patient tends to have much more focal abdominal pain, that, that tells you that it's more likely to be secondary peritonitis, but it's definitely not, um, uh, but the lack of, uh, of focal abdominal pain definitely can't rule out secondary peritonitis. So it's not a sensitive finding. Okay, this is starting to feel like a bit of a losing proposition then. Are there any clinical tools that we can use to help us make this diagnosis? So the, the Runyon criteria was developed to differentiate these, these two pathologies. And the Runyon criteria essentially is that when you do the, the paracentesis and look at the ascites fluids, you're looking for two out of three of the following findings. If you have a protein level greater than 10 grams per liter, a glucose less than 2.8 millimoles per liter, or if the LDH is greater than the upper limit of, uh, of normal in the serum. So if you have two out of three of those things, when you look at the ascites fluid and analyze it, then you have a, a 90% specificity for secondary bacterial peritonitis, meaning two out of those three things in Runyon criteria tells you there's a very strong likelihood that there is a surgical source to this patient's bacterial infection. But the problem is that the sensitivity of the Runyon tool is only around 66%. So for us as eMERGE docs, it's actually really... Um, challenging tool to use because you can't really use it to rule out the disease, which is what we as emergency physicians 
are often really focused on. Now, the CT scan, uh, so advanced imaging, is uh, very, very good for ruling out secondary peritonitis. But it's challenging to say also that you're going to just scan every patient, right? Ultimately, you as an eMERGE doc have to recognize that you're in a really tough spot uh, in that there's not really anything great on history or physical to rule out um, a surgical ab, a, a secondary peritonitis. And the Runyon tool, the Runyon criteria also has pushed the sensitivity to rule out um, a surgical abdomen. And so you you really have to make that decision about whether or not you're going to CT that patient on, on clinical gestalt. Yeah, that sensitivity of 66% for something that can potentially be so dangerous doesn't make me feel great, though. So let me put the question back to you. On your next shift, let's say you have an acidic tap that makes a diagnosis of bacterial peritonitis, and you're trying to decide if it's spontaneous or secondary. What are you going to do at the bedside to actually help help you decide whether or not you're going to scan the patient? So I, I'm absolutely going to do a CT scan on every patient that has ex, like severe, severe uh, abdominal pain. If their abdominal pain is localized or focal in any way, I am going to apply the Runyon criteria still despite the poor sensitivity, because if it is positive, that will absolutely push me to do the CT scan. Uh, And if they're not responding to SBP treatment typically, oftentimes that's after the patient has received their antibiotics, received the albumin and has been consultative. If you're noticing that they're still not getting better or they're deteriorating, then absolutely I would do a CT scan at that point too. Yeah, we should mention too that 2018 EASL guideline states, and this seems intuitively true, although I've never actually specifically seen it written down before. It mentions all the signs you had just talked about, but also very high absolute neutrophil count can be suggestive of secondary bacterial peritonitis. They also mentioned the high acidic protein, although that would be included in the Runyon criteria if you're applying that, but the very high ANC might be a clue as well. Yeah, that's a that's a good point too, uh, Rajiv. So you can you can use that too to kind of push you over to make that call to do the CT scan. Chirag, I gotta be honest, hearing you go through this evidence, this guideline, and present it in such a clear manner really made a world of difference of how I think about these patients. And it really crystallized for me that cirrhotic patients are truly a vulnerable cohort and SBP is a true emergency. It's not just for internal medicine or hepatology. It's something we should really care about in the emergency department. Are there any final points you want to make on this topic for us today? Well, first, thanks for giving me the opportunity to talk about it because it's it's certainly um, kind of studying and 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 researching all of these papers has definitely changed my approach to these patients. And oftentimes, in a busy ED, when you're worried about you know making sure you're you're seeing as many patients as you can and helping the department, it's often hard to push yourself to do a paracentesis and sometimes it can feel like, is that really necessary? And so I just kind of want to bring bring it back to for the listeners to that idea of of um, comparing SBP to, to meningitis. We're, we're willing to put a needle into someone's spine to rule out meningitis. We should be willing to do a paracentesis and put a needle into someone's ascites fluid because this is an extremely high mortality disease it's and it's way more common than meningitis and so this is something that we as emerge docs really need to take ownership of and, and recognize that this is a disease that we have to diagnose in the emergency department and start the treatment for that's awesome chirag you are just an absolute total class act thank you so much for making the time to talk to me today this is obviously a very important topic and i learned a ton so thank you 
No worries. This was a, this was a great experience. Thanks for having me, man. So that's it for this episode on spontaneous and secondary bacterial peritonitis with Dr. Chirag Bhatt. Big thanks to him for spending time with us. I love you, buddy. You can follow him on Twitter at Chirag underscore Bhatt. That's C-H-I-R-A-G underscore B-H-A-T. If you want to check out more great FOMED content from the group here in Ottawa, please go to emottawablog.com. Thanks once again to Yusang for providing our music. That's him you heard on the intro, this outro, and all the little bits in between. And if you've got something you want to hear about on the show, or if you've got a case or a topic you want to talk about, please get in touch. You can always follow and message me on Twitter at Rajiv Thava. That's R-A-J-I-V-T-H-A-V-A. Can't wait to see you again on the next episode. I, so big things I'm into, super into basketball, big Raptors fan. Um, <laughs> like, you know, like, does that have to be medical stuff? I mean, I did pretty specifically mean medical stuff. I mean, it would just be well, so great. It would be you so said great interest. To, that is true. Ever since the yeah. exam is done, that's really all I'm interested in. Yeah, I mean, we're not making you a dating profile. We're doing a, we're doing a, <laughs> Long an emergency medicine. Beach, yeah. yeah. Okay.